The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It, it sounds like you know Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and and other folks had this idea that if they could just get access to some of these machines, they would be able to show that there really was fraud and that there really was, you know, a manipulative algorithm or, or something wrong with the system and that they could prove that Trump had really won the election by getting access to these machines. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 17th, 2023. Anna Bauer is Lawfare's Fulton County correspondent. She is the author of the magisterial article on Lawfare on Tuesday entitled, What the Heck Happened in Coffee County, Georgia? It is a detailed look back at the computer intrusion that shows up rather prominently in Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's election interference indictment. Anna has been working on it for many weeks, and she joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk it through. How did all of this information, depositions, court filings, fall into her lap and reveal this incredible yarn Why did people associated with the Trump campaign get interested in what happened in Coffee County, Georgia? And how did a team end up taking election system data from the county in broad daylight, despite it being computer intrusion and theft? It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 17th, Anna Bauer on what happened in Coffee County. So Anna Bauer, it sounds like there's a little bit going on in the background. Are you in line? (laughs) I am not in line. I am at a cafe. I have had nonstop back-to-back, you know, media stuff going on over the past two days since the Fulton County indictment came down and I didn't have time to drive home to get to a quiet place. So I unfortunately am having to do this and in a corner of a cafe where there is there's people talking in the background and there's music. So apologies to all of our listeners. It's okay. It, it gives a verite quality to the whole <laughs> thing. On the scenes reporter, Anna Bauer. Second question. Are you in Coffee County? I am about 200 miles north of Coffee County in Atlanta, Georgia. Just like Fonnie Willis. Just like Fonnie Willis. She's probably only a few blocks away because I'm in downtown Atlanta right now. So, So Fonnie is somewhere down the street. All right. So as alert listeners can guess, we are here to talk about your epic Uh, I'm trying to think of the right adjectives for it. It's not a trilogy because there's only one article, but it has a kind of Homeric quality to it. It, it's, It's long. It's got a lot of narrative ins and outs, and it is about Coffee County. So I want to start with uh, the question of what is Coffee County and how did you get interested in it? Right. So, and and I just want to say at the outset, you're right to describe it as Homeric. I describe it as Watergate-esque 
because it's a story that has a lot of different threads and that came out in drips and drops in the news and in through litigation. And so it's actually a little bit hard to talk about even. It was really hard to write this story, as you know, Ben, but it, it's it's a complicated story. So bear with me. Actually, one of the things about this conversation that's going to be, uh, I hope, fun and useful is that, you know, we don't have to do it in a big mouthful, um, like, you know, we're talking about the indictment. I want to break down this story, which is, you know, part of the indictment. The story is obviously much deeper and much more involved than the few paragraphs in the indictment that deal with it are. So let's start with how you got interested in this and what 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 made you say, oh, I think it'd be a great idea to spend, you know, hundreds of hours reading depositions from a litigation in a county that I don't have you ever been in Coffee County? No, but I was thinking about going this weekend because they're having a town hall on the matter on Saturday. And, you know, I, my family is from South Georgia. We live in, or my parents live in North Georgia now, about an hour and a half north of Atlanta. But my mom is from an area around coffee. And so I'm familiar with kind of the area and the people and the locale. And it, it was really interesting when I learned a few months ago. Um, so just to back up a second, to answer your question of how I got interested in it. You know, I've been covering the Fulton County case for Lawfare for uh, more than a year now. And it was around, I want to say, August or September of last year when the special purpose grand jury was doing its work. That was the grand jury that Fawny Willis impaneled to kind of do some investigative work. They were doing that work and they started issuing these subpoenas to people who lived out of state and that involved, you know, setting out the reasons why the grand jury wanted to subpoena those folks. And so they issued subpoenas for people like Sidney Powell and uh, Phil Waldron and, you know, kind of these these folks who had been involved in the 2020 election on the Trump campaign side. And, and they all mentioned things about, you know, this breach of voting systems in Coffee County and unauthorized access and copying of, of voting systems and software in Coffee County. So I got a little bit interested in it then, but you know, it was unclear how much the Coffee County story would play a part in Fawny Willis's investigation. And it wasn't until I started speaking to a woman named Marilyn Marks who is the executive director of Coalition for Good Governance, uh, which is a, an election security group who has been, you know, leading the charge on this litigation that's ongoing in Georgia over voting systems. And she started talking to me, you know, we spoke for many months about what was going on in Coffee County. And uh, it was basically through speaking with Marilyn that I started to wonder you know, maybe the Coffee County story will play a big role in the Fulton County investigation because it doesn't seem like it was just some rogue election officials who decided to, you know, access these voting systems. The more I looked into it, the more I learned that, you know, there there was, you know, connections to a broader kind of group within the Trump campaign. All right, so let's actually start by talking about the curling litigation, which you mentioned in the piece, and f which is the source material for a huge amount of the reporting that you did. Who is this Marilyn Marks character? What is her organization? And what is the curling litigation? Right. So the curling litigation was initiated back in 2017 on behalf of a plaintiff uh, as well. And it wasn't just this plaintiff, but there's other plaintiffs, but a woman named Donna Curling, who is a Fulton County resident, and it was Coalition for Good Governance, as, as well as uh, some other you know nonprofit organizations devoted to election security, who initiated this suit called Curling versus Raffensperger. Uh, the kind of 
thing that they were trying to do then back in 2017 was to get Georgia to switch to hand-marked paper ballots from the machines that they used at the time. And at the time, they used these machines called the Diebald machines. It was it was a group of uh, voting machines that was created by a different uh, voting machine manufacturer. And the problem with those machines, Coalition for Good Governance argued, is that they didn't actually have an auditable paper trail. Um, so, you know, people would cast their vote and then it would just go into the system and it wouldn't, you know, print out a separate ballot that said who the who the voter voted for, right? So if you tried to audit those results, it'd be really hard because all you had to rely on was just what the machine said the voters voted for. Um, so they raised concerns about that in federal court for, for several years. A judge Amy Totenberg, who I should mention is Nina Totenberg's sister, um, fun fact, uh, the NPR correspondent. But so Judge Amy Totenberg ultimately said, I agree these machines are unconstitutional under Georgia law, and I'm going to order the, the Georgia Secretary of State to change systems. So there was a lengthy, you know, process in which the Georgia Secretary of State decided to go with Dominion voting systems. And in 2020, during the you know primary season in March of 2020, they finally rolled out these Dominion voting systems, you know, switching them over from the old Diebold system. But the curling plaintiffs were still, you know, concerned about some of the security concerns with the Dominion systems, they had very different concerns from what many conservative activists have have raised questions about. Um, You know, they were concerned with what happens if there's unauthorized access to these machines and the software is spread and and people, you know, then uh, try to attack as hackers and that kind of thing. But not Hugo Chavez. (laughs) Not Hugo. They weren't making any claims about Hugo Chavez. No. So just to be clear, the concerns that the curling plaintiffs have about Dominion voting systems have in common with the conspiracy theories about the 2020 election using Dominion voting systems. Anything or is are these just completely unrelated security concerns about uh, Dominion voting systems that, you know, happen to be being litigated around the same time. Well, I think that it's fair to say that broadly, both the conservative side and the curling plaintiffs were concerned about just generally, you know, hacking of the machines and making sure that there is, uh, you know, an auditable, like, I think that the main thing with the curling plaintiffs is they want to make sure there's a auditable paper trail. Um, the thing that they're raising with Dominion machines is that, you know, there's there they use QR codes as opposed to actually, you know, writing out who what each voter voted for on the machine return whenever they print out a paper ballot that goes with the person's vote. So uh, broadly, there are similar concerns, but very different in terms of what election security experts say are actually legitimate in terms of the specifics of it, right? So the curling plaintiffs aren't saying anything about Hugo Chavez or Chinese thermostats or anything like that. And they've never made the claim that that there's any actual evidence of widespread fraud or machines being hacked. Um, so, so the curling plaintiffs are not trying to say that Dominion machines have actually flipped any elections or anything like that. They're just raising concerns that many election security experts have said are legitimate about, you know, future threats to, you know, election security. And it's fair to say that that Dominion voting systems has not sued them and recover liable and recovered, you know, $750 million, right? <laughs> no. And in fact, you know, there's a report that uh, his name is Dr. Alex Halderman. He's a very well-respected uh, election security expert at who, you know, Judge Totenberg, he, he wrote a report on the uh, vulnerability of Dominion voting systems 
And Judge Totenberg kept it under seal for some time, I think because of concerns that the, the concerns articulated by Dr. Halderman would be used for disinformation purposes to discredit the results of elections where there's no actual reason to believe that those elections, you know, had had any kind of widespread fraud. But she kept it under seal and, and it was uh, recently unsealed. But Judge Totenberg found, you know, that there were concerns in that report that were legitimate. You know, the litigation is ongoing, but it, it is, you know, something that I, I think that it's just important to stress that the concerns raised by the curling plaintiffs are very different from from suggesting that, you know, the 2020 election was, a, you know, a steal, that it, it there was widespread fraud, that Hugo Chavez ha- hacked the machines, all of that. Who is, by the way, dead. Yeah, exactly. And but it makes it, it, you know, because this is such a complicated story, like it's very complicated to tell talk about these nuances. Right. Right. And, and, and well, that's why I actually want to start wanted to start with this. So if these two issues are essentially unrelated, except that they both involve the security of of Dominion voting systems at use in Georgia, how is it that the curling litigation became this vehicle for deposing everybody involved in the Coffee County scandal, which we are getting to, and became the mechanism by which so much information about the breach at Coffee County was released? Right. So one of the concerns that's been raised by the curling plaintiffs is, you know, like I said, they've made no suggestion that any election has been so-called flipped or that there is any widespread fraud. But in, you know, Dr. Halderman and other experts' estimation of the threats to voting systems, one of the things they discussed is what if there's unauthorized access to these machines where someone could insert malware or, you know, someone could make our systems more vulnerable by, you know, uh, if if they did have access to these systems, then they could really do some harm. And so one of the ways that they wanted to, you know, show that that is a realistic possibility is, is by saying, well, it's happened here in Georgia already. And so they, when the, the, the Coffee County, you know, so-called breach occurred, um, it was actually Marilyn Marks, who is one of, is the executive director of, of the kind of nonprofit that initiated the suit. She was on a phone call with a man called Scott Hall, um, and she began recording it because he started talking about how he had a team that went down to Coffee County and copied everything down there. And, you know, for a long time, she tried to convince people that this had actually happened. And and people kind of didn't really, you know, believe it. Uh, at one point, the, Gabe Sterling, who um, worked in the Secretary of State's office, you know, he said, you know, that didn't happen. But they subsequently opened discovery. Judge Totenberg agreed to allow, you know, grant them discovery in the case. And through that discovery, it was all, you know, they were able to subpoena witnesses. They were able to obtain video surveillance and and all kinds of stuff. Um, And it was through all of that that the unauthorized access became public. And these depositions just had some incredible information in them. And so that's how it all came out. And I think that it's really flown under the radar. Yeah, well, at least until a few days ago. So mm-hmm. let, me, let me try to unpack this. Marilyn Marks, who uh, has this election security voting integrity organization, has concerns about Dominion voting systems that if you say, broke into an election security or or an election administration office and stole a bunch of the machines and stole a bunch of data, you could really undermine the security of elections. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. and then she's on the phone with Scott Hall, who has subsequently been indicted in the Fulton County indictment. And he says to her, 
you know, hey, we just walked into Coffee County and took the stuff. I think the line is we we got every freaking ballot, every freaking voter or something. And she alarm bells go off with her because she's like, this is actually the hypothetical that we've been talking about. And he's saying they did it. So they she brings it into this litigation and thereby unfolds as a kind of a case study, right? To show the plausibility of the concerns that she has. They bring it into this litigation and effectively unveil uh, what is now a substantial component of the Fulton County indictment. Is, is that a fair summary? I think that that's a, an excellent summary, Ben. All right. So having now spent the first 20 minutes of this conversation, getting to merely how the curling plaintiffs started, got onto this and how this became public, walk us through what's essentially the opening paragraphs of the piece where the breach happens and people who are you know, not supposed to just walk into an election management center in a small rural county in Georgia, just walk in and take the uh, the voting systems data. Right. So put yourself at shortly before noon on January 7th, 2021. This is the day after the attempted insurrection in Washington, D.C., these plans started forming, you know, in the days before January 6th. And as the nation is still still reeling from the events of January 6th, in this small rural town in Coffee County, Georgia, there is a Republican Party official named Kathy Latham who greets a computer forensics team called Sullivan Strickler at an elections office in Coffee County. And this group of employees from the forensics team has driven into the rural town from Atlanta. They are also greeted by a man named Scott Hall, who is a bail bondsman who flew down separately from Atlanta to meet them there. And they're all there, or the Sullivan Strickler team is there at the behest of Sidney Powell, who at the time was, you know, very deeply involved in the Trump campaign's legal strategy. And so all of these people meet at the elections office around noon. They go inside and there they are greeted by two of the local election officials, Misty Hampton and Eric Cheney, as well as a former election official named Ed Voyles. And what we know from video surveillance and filings in the litigation is that over the course of several hours, that forensics team, you know, handles and scans and copies some of the state's most sensitive voting software and equipment. And in the litigation, it's It has been stated that, you know, it was basically every single part of the election software from the, you know, election server to uh, ballots to, uh, you know, thumb drives that were in the office. Uh, They made these kind of copies or replicas of them. And then they exited the office, you know, around eight o'clock at night And it's, you know, subsequent emails show that uh, Sullivan Strickler uploaded all that information to a share file site and access logs show that it was accessed by, you know, over a dozen people in various states. And then there were subsequent breaches that essentially they came and took more, right? Over over the next few weeks, they took more stuff. Well, there was there were different people who came in. There, there's a man named Jeff Lindbergh and Doug Logan, who we know from surveillance footage, uh, visited the office with uh, Misty Hampton, who is one of the 
people who's indicted in Fulton County now for for these events. They claim in their depositions that they did not touch the uh, software or any of the you know systems while they were there. They they said that um, they were merely directing Misty Hampton, who's the election supervisor, to do tests. But you know it's. It's very much the case that that is not something that, according to the Secretary of State and and according to depositions um, from from the filings in the curling litigation, everyone has said, you know, that was not authorized access. And and they were running these tests on the EMS server, which is, you know, the server that runs the the elections in Coffee County. So it's it's yes, there were there was additional unauthorized access um, over the next few weeks. All right. So one thing that a reasonable listener would be saying is why Coffee County? Why does the Trump campaign, you know, between January 6th and the inauguration of Joe Biden, why are they interested in the elections data of a county in Georgia that the president won overwhelmingly and that there were, you know, if there there aren't enough voters there to make a difference in the in the general election in Georgia, let alone in anywhere else, why did Sidney Powell and company care about the election systems in Coffee County? Right. So you've got to put yourself back in November of 2020 and December of 2020 and remember what was happening. You know, Trump lost the election. He won Coffee County by, you know, an overwhelming amount but in the meeting minutes that we've reviewed for the piece um, and, and through text messages and emails and depositions, we know that the Coffee County uh, elections folks were, you know, still convinced that, you know, there was something that had gone on in other counties. They talk about how there's there's still ways that the system could be manipulated and, and through this process called adjudication. And so they they were really concerned in the in the way that all of the Trump campaign was, you know, saying that people should be concerned and all these false claims they were making about Dominion, the Coffee County election officials' concerns really just played into that, right? So it was a useful Coffee County ended up being useful to them because subsequently, when there were two recounts in Georgia on, you know, when they did the machine recount, Coffee County refused to certify. They wrote to the Secretary of State saying, you know, we can't replicate our election night results. It turned out later after an investigation that that was a result of human error, not not because of the machines. But all of this kind of just became a narrative that the Trump campaign could use to suggest that there was something wrong with the machines. And when you look at, you know, the depositions from the January 6th committee and from statements that have been made, it, it sounds like, you know, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and, and other folks had this idea that if they could just get access to some of these machines, they would be able to show that there really was fraud and that there really was, you know, a manipulative algorithm or, or something wrong with the system and that they could prove that Trump had really won the election by getting access to these machines. And it wasn't because Coffee County was using these machines that they were concerned. It was because, or that they purported to be concerned, it was because other places were using the same machines, right? That was the theory. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's very important to say because, you know, Dominion is used in many different states and by and large, it's it's the same software. I mean, there's there's differences between between the machines and in some places, but um, for the most part, you know, that software is is used in various uh, in multiple states. So the idea is that, you know, if you can get a look at these machines and, you you know, it's the same thing that happened in Antrim. 
if folks recall what happened in Antrim, there was a clerical mistake. In Michigan. In in Michigan, yes. Uh, there was a clerical mistake. Uh, it made it look like uh, the, the county was going to go to Joe Biden, which is really unusual because Trump uh, was expected to win there. The, the clerk, you know, realized that her unofic- unofficial results were, were wrong and that she'd done the calculation wrong. She subsequently fixed it within, you know, a few hours. But by then, the narrative just kind of spun out of control that the Antrim was proof that something was wrong with the machines. And, and so, you know, someone who was aligned with the Trump campaign sought to get access to the machines in, in Michigan through a court order, which which was granted. And, and then subsequently, a man named Russ Ramsland, who's um, the owner of a cyber security firm that has been kind of bent on showing that that machine voting is rigged. Um, he did a report that was widely re- debunked, but the Trump campaign kind of t- touted that report as being proof of fraud, right? And so the idea was that we just need something more than Antrim to to continue to show that you know there's fraud or that that we've examined these machines. I mean, what what strikes me as so strange about this case is that. Coffee County kind of becomes a case study for everybody. First, uh, the Trump people say, okay, well, we don't distrust the results in Coffee County, which we, where we won big, but the Coffee County people won't certify their elections because they think there's something wrong with their machines. So let's use their experience to talk about the machines, but then we need the machines. So you go in and you basically organize a permitted theft of the machines and their data, at which point Marilyn Marks finds out about it because the Trump people, Scott Hall, are boasting about it. So then it becomes a case study for her, hey, this is how you could actually screw up election security if somebody were to get unauthorized access to this data. And look, they've got it. And so you have this insignificant county numerically where, you know, that nobody actually doubts that it voted the way it voted, that becomes kind of a case study for everybody's theories about how elections could be insecure and the result of that is that you actually have a breach that makes elections less secure. Right. And that's the whole irony of the story, right, is these people were saying our elections are rigged and they're on the hunt for fraud. And then now <laughs> they themselves have been charged with conspiring to, you know, access our, our elections, yeah, with, with election fraud. And, and in trying to allege that our elections are insecure, they've made our elections more insecure, potentially more insecure. So it's really a wild story in that respect. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. All right. So 
there are going to be people who say, okay, so Sidney Powell is a crazy person. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I mean, it may be true, but, but the defense will go, okay, even Trump thought she was a little crazy. And so she gets some people to steal some computers. Uh, she's sort of acting on behalf of the Trump campaign, but she's sort of her own operation. So this doesn't really have anything to do with the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. And one of the things that your piece does, I think in a way that is really compelling, is it shows that it was not just Sidney Powell who was, you know, on behalf of the Trump, not just campaign, but the Trump administration dealing with, you know, Coffee County. And so I'm, I want you to walk us through what are the threads that link Donald Trump and his, his Justice Department, his campaign, his, you know, the, his operatives. There are all these weird connections between the president and his campaign and Coffee County. And it's not just Sidney Powell. What are the other threads? Right. And, you know, it's uh, the, the threads almost make you feel like something is missing, like you're missing something. Uh, there's some kind of broader story here that is not quite out there yet. Um, but so I, I maybe I'll start with chronologically going through it. So after Coffee County decides not to certify its uh, machine recount in Georgia because of this, you know, 51 vote difference that was later determined to result from human error, the Trump campaign, you kind of see them so using this. Is this is mid-December. Right. This is. Oh, but but I should say it started the reach out. The, the Coffee County officials reaching out to the Trump campaign started even earlier. So in in the piece, you know, we have emails, we have, you know, deposition testimony and all of this where, you know, the people who were involved in this breach, that's Misty Hampton and Ed Voyles and Eric Cheney and Coffee County, they were reaching out to people like Lynn Wood to say, you know, hey, we've had problems here. They were reaching out to Robert Sinners, to, who was, you know, the a Trump campaign staffer in Georgia. And, and so they were reaching out to all these people to say, you know, hey, like we've had uh, problems with our machines and we have written to Raffensperger to say something about these machines and, you know, passing along meeting minutes from board meetings and all of this. And, and it turns out that all of this stuff ends up in litigation that the Trump campaign is using to decertify the results of the 2020 election. So, And this is despite the fact that they don't think there was a problem in Coffee County. There's a, a, 50 <laughs> vote, a 50 vote discrepancy, which is the result of basically somebody running a set of ballots through the machines twice. But they don't actually think there's a problem with their vote count but they refuse to certify it anyway and are kind of waving their hands trying to get the Trump campaign's attention, right? Right, exactly. They're waving their hands to, uh, you know, get their attention. And I, I guess that even though they're saying, you know, we have a great system, you know, we do things with integrity, like, somehow it's a convoluted kind of logic, right? They're somehow saying the fact that we couldn't match our election night total with the 50 count difference with our machines means there's something wrong with the machines. Yeah. So I, I, I want to pause you there because one of the subtexts of this is a real racial subtext. Yeah. The, in these minutes, one of the election officials basically says this process is bad and and somebody could do X. Now, here in Coffee County, we would never do X, but there are these other people and other counties where that could happen. And she's not saying that she has any evidence that it did happen or that it's, you know, but She's kind of saying, if people aren't a lot like us, 
And I read that maybe as a, you know, a mid-Atlantic person with a, 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 a little bit of prejudice as being kind of a rural, rural white Southern County official saying, I trust the way we do it here in Coffee County, but I don't trust those big city Democrats, i.e. black people. Am I being unfair or is, is that the way that set of minutes reads to you as well? That's absolutely how it reads to me, and especially in the context of knowing what the conversation was at during the 2020 election in terms of the false claims that Trump campaigners were parroting about, uh, you know, people who are in largely black counties in Atlanta, you know, people like Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, who are in Fulton County, and the the way that race was was used as a way of kind of, you know, saying that, oh, well, these folks are uh, rigging the election. It's the suitcases full of ballots and all of this stuff. And even if on the surface, the the racial factor is, you know, not explicit, it's certainly implicit. And and it, you know, has it, there's such a long history of of this in Georgia of saying that um, counties where it, the population is largely black is is somehow, you know, the vote count has been uh, corrupted or is fraudulent. You know, there's just incredibly long history of basically stifling black votes by making those kinds of false claims. Um, so I, I think you're not wrong at all, Ben, that that is the subtext. Yeah. All right. So they're waving their hands at, at Trump lawyers like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and and at Georgia Trump officials like like Mr. Sinners. But you know, a lot of people wave their hands. Then this stuff starts showing up in Trump campaign materials. They clearly get their attention. One thing that's not in your story is kind of, and you allude to this, alluded to this before, it's not clear quite how that happened, right? How, who in the Trump campaign, maybe it was Sidney Powell, but who, who said, hey, we've got a potential gold mine in Coffee County. There's a bunch of people who refuse to certify their election, and they say that they've discovered a mechanism by which, you know, evil people like Ruby Freeman can, can, you know, mess up the vote count, which of course, Ruby Freeman is not an evil person and didn't do. But we don't really know how the Trump campaign got interested in Coffee County, or do we? No, it's a really, and that's one of the big mysteries to me is, you know, how did this end up? So just to give you an idea of how this ended up in the highest levels of, you know, the Trump campaign materials, it's site, Coffee County is cited in a strategic communications plan that was created by uh, Giuliani's legal team, you know, as a, as the kind of social media strategy that they were going to use throughout the campaign for, for the tail end of it through like December and January. It shows up in two draft executive orders that were presented by Trump associates to Trump uh, in a December 18th White House meeting that would have allowed the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security to seize Dominion voting machines from the states. And then, you know, it ended up in litigation. They they ended up suing the Coffee County Board of Elections by citing to the, you know, failure to certify. And the underlying claim in that is that that, you know, gave them reason to decertify the results in Georgia. So it just starts showing up everywhere. You know, it's also in the Georgia legislative hearings that are a big part of the Fulton County indictment. So Coffee County is just everywhere in these campaign documents and lawsuits. And it's really unclear how that happened. I I, I don't know the answer to it yet. Um, and maybe it's something that we'll find out more about as as the Fulton County case continues. So it's it's a mystery. But it is not just the campaign and its material. It's also officials, particularly Jeff Clark at the Justice Department, mm-hmm. 
who get directly involved with dealing with the people who ultimately conduct this operation the day after the the insurrection. Right. We know that um, Jeff Clark, uh, you know, in the I believe it's the early December or late December or early January period, Jeff, Jeff Clark, the indictment alleges had an over hour long phone conversation with Scott Hall, who is one of the folks who is alleged to be the main one of the main points of contact in in orchestrating this breach. And and, you know, we also know or we we suspect um, based on various circumstances that uh, Kathy Latham may have traveled to D.C. where it, it, it seems that based on deposition testimony, you know, she may have met with Giuliani and, and discussed, you know, Coffee County stuff. To be clear, who is Kathy Latham? I don't think her name has come up yet in this conversation. Right. So Kathy Latham is the uh, former, she was then uh, the the chairwoman of the Coffee County GOP. She was uh, very actively involved in, uh, in elections stuff in Coffee County. And she ended up being one of the people who, you know, met the forensics team on January 7th and was there in the office the whole day m- m- or most of the day with them, according to surveillance footage. And and she was, you know, Sullivan Strickler, who's the forensic company, later said that she was one of the main points of contact on the day. So, and there's, you know, both Giuliani and Bernie Carrick in their January 6th committee testimony say that there was some whistleblower from Georgia who came up to Washington to stay at the Willard Hotel and and wanted to meet with Giuliani, you know, we suspect that might be Kathy Latham because she's this person is described as a whistleblower. Well, later that month, Kathy Latham shows up at a Georgia legislative hearing where she is described as a whistleblower and she's represented by the counsel for the Giuliani legal team. And we also have text messages that place her in D.C. around the time that, you know, we suspect this whistleblower met with Giuliani or potentially met with Giuliani. And she also stayed at the Willard on that trip. And that's where Giuliani was uh, and Carrick were operating out of and hosting their whistleblower. Right. And so the the circumstantial evidence that Kathy Latham is the person in question. And I think the piece is, is very, it's very careful not to say more than we know, but I think it's also very, it's very suggestive that the whistleblower, the, the circumstantial case is pretty strong. And I suspect Fonnie Willis knows the answer to this question because Kathy Latham is in, among the indicted people in her case. Right. And, uh, you know, there's other things, too, that relate to the Giuliani legal team. So it's it's on um, January 1st, Catherine Frice, who was one of the attorneys who was working primarily with the Giuliani uh, faction of the legal team, she sends a message to Sullivan, a Sullivan Strickler employee. And she says, you know, hey, we've got an invitation to Coffee County and, you know, we were it might happen in the next week or, you know, whatever, like I'll keep you posted. Um, we also know from a privilege log in other litigation that uh, a part of the privilege materials that have been claimed as privileged is a letter of in, it's titled, you know, letter of invitation to Coffee County. And it's been sent out to, you know, Bernie Carrick and Phil Waldron and and some other folks uh, who had worked, you know, for the campaign or in association with the campaign. So there's just all kinds of stuff. All right. So you're saying two things that will seem to a number of listeners, I'm sure, to be somewhat at odds with one another. And I want you to square this circle. Uh, On the one hand, you're calling it a breach. You're calling it unauthorized access. And on the other hand, you just described a letter of invitation uh, that Sullivan Strickler received 
to essentially do this? How can these two things be true at the same time? Normally, when I invite somebody in my house, much a formal letter of invite, we don't consider it a break-in when they show up for dinner. Make sense of that for us. Right. Well, whether or not something is unauthorized depends depends on who has authority to to permit the conduct, right? So even if I invite someone into your home, Ben, like that's not my home, so I don't have the authority to do that. So even if I said, hey, uh, why don't you go into Ben's house? Like that, that's not, I don't have the lawful authority to do that. And that's the case here, at least as far as I understand it. So the Coffee County Board of Elections in deposition testimony, a representative for the Board of Elections has stated that they, the board is was not aware of anyone being invited to go in and copy or do work on the equipment, and that if they wanted to do that, that they would have to have quorum or, or you know, a decision of the board with with more board members than just you know Eric Cheney or or Misty Hampton. So the alleged invitation letter is, as CNN has reported, from Misty Hampton. As the election supervisor, she would not have the unilateral authority to just invite them in to do this work. Equally, the Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, has called this an unauthorized breach. He said that, you know, they did not have uh, authorization to do this work. He's also said that he thinks it's unlawful and that he expects jail time from the breach. And so, you know, additionally, Dominion, while they have not made public statements about the breach, I will say that, you know, their terms of service require written consent from the company for anyone to come in and and, and, uh, who's a third party to do work on it um, because, you know, their contract is with the state. So I. I am not aware of of any written consent that Dominion gave to these folks to go in and and copy the Dominion uh, system, and I I think that we have you know circumstantial evidence that Dominion did not authorize it because they have sent out bulletins uh, saying that third party access is is not authorized. And so the board says that it didn't authorize it and that it would have required a quorum to do it. But the people who did authorize it, although we're not entirely sure, as best as I can tell, who they were, do seem to have been officials, right? I mean, Misty Hampton was an elections official and sort of worked for the board, and Cheney was uh, the chair of the board or was a member of the board. She was the administrator. So she she was not a voting member of the board. She was kind of responsible for just running things in the office day to day. She was hired by the board to work for the board. And and she would not have unilateral authority to allow someone to come and inspect the EMS server, you know, and and it's not the kind of thing where these things are just open for public inspection like there are reasons why we keep our election security under lock and key. And what about Cheney? Yeah, so Cheney was a board member, but again, based on what I know from deposition testimony, it, it, it has been said that he would not have had as a single board member the unilateral authority to allow or permit access to the elections equipment. So it's kind of like, it's not really like you letting people into my house. It's really like if I had a house cleaner who let somebody yes. in to examine my computer, right? That would be the closest, like somebody who yes. works for me in the house, let somebody in to go through my, my stuff. And maybe to make the example really precise, it would be like, a staff member at Lawfare allowing access to sort of our corporate records and maybe a Lawfare board member allowing that too, but the board not having been consulted. So it's just kind of a, a rogue member, a rogue action 
by an employee and a member of the board to allow outsiders to come in and steal stuff. I think that's a great analogy. Yes. As usual, you come up with a better analogy than I, than I would. But yeah, I think that's right. All right. So what is the lesson of this story? I mean, you know, I, I think about it at some level as the very granular details of sort of a tawdry local episode that actually involves theft, right? In the larger Trump election overturning enterprise uh, that we happen to have real chapter and verse on. But there's sort of some larger implications of it too. And so I'm, I'm curious for your thoughts, what are the lessons of Coffee County? I think one of the lessons is that we've learned from the 2020 election that the disinformation around the election has ironically potentially made our election systems less secure. You know, what happened in Coffee County is not really unique. We there were there were just a, a number of people who were indicted in in Michigan, you know, a, a week or two ago for similar conduct and you know, these kinds of unauthorized breaches or access is something that we should all be concerned about because, you know, the election security experts say that if this software is in the hands of bad actors, it's the kind of thing where they could test this software for vulnerabilities. There's the access that was given in Coffee County involved actually, you know, touching the the systems and inserting thumb drives and doing these kinds of things that it would be really easy to install malware or, or whatever. And, and I'm not saying that any of that occurred, but what I'm saying is that, you know, there is concerns here that ironically the, the search for election fraud has, has potentially made our systems more vulnerable. And the secretary of state's office has said that it, it's not planning to update the software before the 2024 election. I believe it's planning to do an update after the 2024 election. But, you know, these are the kinds of concerns that have been raised in the curling litigation that is still kind of ongoing. And I'm, and I'm certainly not saying that I agree with everything that the curling plaintiffs have, have raised, but they do make a really good point that, you know, it's precisely this kind of unauthorized access to our election systems that 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 should make us worried and should set off alarm bells. And maybe should like it, it is possible to scream election fraud in a way that actually erodes election security. It doesn't, you know, raise alarm bells that cause people to increase it. And it's possible that if you make people focus on the wrong thing, if people are convinced that Hugo Chavez is, you know, causing votes to be flipped for Joe Biden from the grave, maybe they don't notice when you walk into an election uh, headquarters, rifle through all the machines and release the software in question in an unauthorized fashion to hundreds of people. And you can really take your eye off the ball by focusing on on ghosts. We are going to leave it there. Anna Bauer, uh, it's an amazing piece for those who have not read it. Spend some time with it. It's a project. It was a project to write. It's a bit of a project to read, but it's a pleasure. And I promise you, you will learn a lot. You will understand the Fulton County litigation in a different way as a result. Anna, thank you for joining us today. We will never hear the words coffee and county together (laughs) in a sentence in quite the same way. Thanks, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode, bridging Fulton County, Georgia with Tallinn, Estonia, is Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, you 
probably haven't signed up to become a material supporter yet. And our work this week really suggests it's time you do that. It's been an incredible week in news in Lawfare's area, and I could not be more proud of the work the team has done, including Anna's Fulton County piece. I think it's time you guys signed up to support the site. If you've already done so, you're a hero and we thank you. If you haven't already done so, please take a moment to consider it. Go to lawfaremedia.org slash support. The Lawfare podcast is edited by the one, the only Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the inimitable Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.